The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. When someone has pain, they are clenching, they are not taking deep breaths, they are in miserable agony. And so the sooner that they can get some relief from that pain, the sooner they can actually relax. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode focuses on vascular occlusive crises in sickle cell disease. The articles that we discuss are treatment of acute pain in adults with sickle cell disease in an infusion center versus the emergency department, published July 6, 2021, and the accompanying editorial, One Small Step for Sickle Cell Disease, Many More to Go, published the same date and written by our guest, Dr. Julie Cantor. Dr. Cantor is the director of the UAB Adult Sickle Cell Clinic and associate professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology. She is the president of the National Alliance for Sickle Cell Centers. We hope that you learn a lot from this podcast. Julie, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast to discuss this really important article, in my opinion. I thought it'd be worthwhile to go back over for our listeners the uh, variants of sickle cell disease, and and you take care of a lot of patients with sickle cell diseases, and sort of frame sickle cell disease, and then describe vascular occlusive crises, and which variants of sickle cell diseases are we mostly talking about? Sure, absolutely. So sickle cell disease is the most common inherited pathologic blood condition in the United States. We hypothesize it affects anywhere from about 100 to 120,000 individuals, although I, I suspect we're closer to the upper limit. We have no national registry at this point, so it really limits our ability to know exactly how many affected individuals there are. And it is truly a, the name of a collection of hemoglobinopathies. So sickle cell disease is defined by anyone who inherits both the sickle hemoglobin or hemoglobin S and another abnormal hemoglobin. So that can be hemoglobin C, D, or E. All of those would be compound heterozygotes. So they'd be hemoglobin SC disease or SD disease. And then sometimes they will co-inherit a thalassemia trait, which by itself would be benign, but in combination with hemoglobin S is, of course, results in sickle cell disease. So it's any of those sort of variations. Um, It does not include sickle cell trait. So we do not consider sickle cell trait a disease which causes at least sickle cell disease pain crises. There is a potential that individuals with sickle cell trait might be at slight increased risk of clotting, um, of being hypercoagulable, or of uh, having some long-term kidney dysfunction that continues to be evaluated. But for this purpose, we're really talking about sickle cell disease. This article is about vascular occlusive crises, which are the painful crises. And maybe you could describe those and talk about, are they more common with with some of the homozygous versus heterozygous types of uh, sickle cell disease and why this is such a big problem? 
So acute vasoocclusive crisis or acute painful episode, as some of us like to think of it, these are manifestations, the most common manifestation that providers in the medical center see, because it's the most common reason that a patient would come in to the, especially the emergency department. And this is when the blood in the small microvascular areas gets trapped and doesn't flow as well, resulting in microvascular ischemia, sometimes ischemia and reperfusion, and is really quite painful. And again, it's the primary reason that people um, seek care. Now in pediatrics, we're more likely to see this in those with homozygous disease or hemoglobin SS, sickle cell anemia. However, as patients age, actually, all of the genotypes are likely to cause vasoclusive crises. So it doesn't matter if you have hemoglobin SC or SS or SD. And in fact, we really are shying away from diagnosing sickle cell disease severity based on genotype, because sometimes we can have others you know, with hemoglobin SS who, who have more mild disease and, and really don't have a lot of problems than those with hemoglobin SC who have very severe outcomes. So we try to try to avoid that. The reason it's a big deal, first of all, is that acute painful crises are, as you might imagine, horribly painful. Most patients with sickle cell disease will tell you, women will tell you that childbirth is nothing compared to a sickle cell crisis, that they breeze through it um, and that it's, it's easy in comparison. So that gives a pretty good idea of how very painful these acute crises can be. So they really impact individuals' lives. And the second, I think, most important thing from an individual affected standpoint is that they come out of the blue. There's often no predicting them. So it makes it very hard to wanna to go on a trip or wanna have a job because you're always worried that this could happen. And while there are things we can do to help prevent crises, none of those are foolproof. And so we really try to um, encourage people to stay healthy, but they may still have a crisis even doing their very best. So in order to understand the study, it's probably worthwhile to go over previous research about the timely initiation of opiates. Because as I understand, opiates really are the only good pain control mechanism we have for these horrible, painful crises. Yeah. And so the other thing I guess I should have mentioned is that sickle cell, because um, especially many of our adults don't have sound access to care, um, a lot of adults are using the emergency department when they have these terrible acute crises, and sometimes they don't even have pain medicine at home. So there's a, a huge frequency or medical burden acute care use on the system. In the study, we're specifically looking at how we give that treatment for acute painful crisis, and where's the patient best served? And it's an important question from a number of levels. So one of the ways that we are measuring this is based on the NHLBI consensus guidelines that were published in 2014 that identify that the sooner and faster you get someone out of pain, the better they're going to do. And that is the majority of the time is by giving IV parenteral uh, opioids or, and or anti-inflammatories. And it's truly the gold standard. Unfortunately, despite several different research studies, some of which I have been a part of, we have yet to identify another medication that can help stop a crisis once it starts. That would be ideal. We want a disease-modifying medicine um, to get the blood flowing so it, it doesn't cause damage and doesn't hurt as much. Unfortunately, right now, we just haven't found one for a number of reasons. And so IV opioids or IV um, anti-inflammatories, or even in, in some cases, IV acetaminophen are options, but IV opioids are the gold standard. And ideally, we want to get this into the patient as fast as possible. And it's not because the opioid themselves do anything to treat the sickling process, right? We know that the opioids just snap a connection to tell your brain that you don't have pain. 
But when someone has pain, they are clenching, they are not taking deep breaths, they are in miserable agony. And so the sooner that they can get some relief from that pain, the sooner they can actually relax, allow their blood to flow better, they take deeper breaths, and they'll have less risk of having a severe complication due to that crisis. I was so impressed when I read about this study because it's a really creative design. You can't really do a randomized controlled trial of going to infusion center versus going to an emergency department. So how did they get around this and how are they able to collect all this data with all the problems of informed consent, et cetera? So they did a couple of things that are really excellent. First of all, it's a really well done study because it's very geographically distributed. So it's not just in one area of the country, which is important also was done in different types of hospitals. So not just um, the high powered academic hospital like Johns Hopkins, but also within a community setting in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So that was really important. And what they did is that each of these institutions already had a sickle cell center of sorts where they had an infusion area. They had the option for patients to get treated in an infusion center, but patients didn't always go to that infusion center. But these patients were seen in a sickle cell center with regular outpatient follow-up. So as a result, they pre-consented them, meaning that they said, we know at some point in the next year, you might have a crisis. When that happens, we would like to consent you for this study. So they consented them ahead of time so that they didn't have to find a consent when they were in a lot of pain or had just gotten pain medicine when their judgment might be cloudy. So that was great. And then the second thing they did, I thought that was fantastic, was they didn't randomize where the patient went for care, but collected the data and sort of did a post an observational randomization, meaning that they they identified them by where they went for care, as opposed to by telling them where they had to go for care. And then they also made sure that the hours were similar and that they were in the same institution. So they could collect really similar data in similar places to look at differences in outcomes. On previous podcasts, we've discussed uh, the concept of propensity analysis, a way to match the patients uh, so that you can say, Uh, This patient went for the infusion center. This one went to the emergency department, but they went in similar situations at the same place. And it's sort of a post-randomization matching. And I thought that that was really clever the way they did that. The results are really powerful. You know, you discuss them beautifully in your editorial, but I'd like you to discuss them and put it into context for major centers going on, people who take care of a lot of sickle cell patients like we do uh, and you do it at UAB? I think it's important to know that we think incredibly highly of our ER colleagues. We think that our ER colleagues are amazing and that one of the things that to us stands out the most is our ER colleagues have to do so much and they have to know about so many different acute disease processes that One of the problems we see when individuals with sickle cell disease go to the emergency department is that often the emergency department is backed up and it's not that the patients are ignored or not triaged, although I will tell you sometimes that happens. It's also that they're just busy. And so what we found in this study or what they found in this study was that individuals were treated over two times as quickly in the infusion setting, time from door to first dose of pain medicine, that they would have in the emergency department. And that's a really big finding. The second finding is looking at the admission rates. You are so much more likely to be admitted to the hospital for pain management if you've been seen through the emergency department versus the infusion center. And I think it's important to talk about that. There's a few reasons. 
sometimes it's because in an infusion center, we often have the luxury of time. We can give patients medication over several hours, reevaluate them, see how they're doing, monitor their dose, see if we need to increase it. And that may be different than the emergency department because they are so busy. They need to see the patient, they need to take care of them, and then they need to make a decision. Are they being admitted or are they going home? And they don't have that luxury of time. And so that really can push the patient into saying, well, I don't feel well enough yet, and I don't know if I'm going to feel well enough in three hours, so I might as well decide to be admitted. And that's another big difference in, in the treatment and what they saw in the study. So let me see if this is true or not. Part of it is that if you're an infusion center, the people who are taking care of you are more focused on you and aren't being distracted very appropriately in an emergency department by all these other patients that also have very serious problems. And so it's almost like one of the reasons you put patients in an ICU is, is for staffing ratios. And it sounds like the infusion center gives you a better staffing ratio. Plus, it gives you uh, nurses and physicians who are focused on sickle cell diseases and vascular occlusive crises and are experts in it and therefore can do better judgments and give better follow-up. Absolutely part of the issue and part of the reason that I think there was such findings in this study that the individuals who work in infusion centers are sickle cell disease experts. They're trained, everyone from the provider to the nurse practitioners to the nurses are well-trained in sickle cell disease often they also know these individuals. And so I can't say enough about the importance between provider and affected patient. Obviously, if you are an individual suffering from sickle cell disease and severe acute pain, you're gonna be more comfortable with someone that you are comfortable with and that you trust. And there's a lot of history of racism and stigma that can't be ignored when it comes to sickle cell disease, especially in the United States. And so we have to recognize that patients of all types are gonna be treated in a situation in which they are comfortable and they trust and have better outcomes because they trust what the providers are telling them. And so I think along with the expertise of the treating providers, that's a big deal. Yeah. So in the emergency department, there's so many different people that if you came to the emergency department for five different crises, you might see five totally different people, some of whom really understand this and some of whom don't understand it as well. And trying to educate all those people is going to be much more difficult than having a dedicated group of people who really are invested in helping people who have this genetic disease. One of the things that uh, I think is of overlying importance here is the recent emergence of sickle cell centers, not just for the acute crises, but just for the overall care of these patients. And, and could you tell us a little bit, about, because I think each of these places has a sickle cell center and these are becoming more common. You run one and t tell us about those and why they're so important. Absolutely. So it's probably my favorite subject uh, to talk about the importance of sickle cell centers in care. And I think there's some obvious analogies. The first is breast cancer. And I like to talk about breast cancer because it's a very common malignancy that we see. But no matter where an individual has breast cancer, whether they live in rural Georgia or Atlanta, rural Alabama or Birmingham, you better believe they're gonna get treated by a cancer physician, someone who specializes in oncology. And unfortunately, the same thought is not used in sickle cell disease. And so there is sort of a, a mistaken idea that because you are living in a rural area and have sickle cell disease, that therefore that primary care doctor should have the responsibility and knowledge to take care of you. And sometimes that's true, but as you might 
sort of um, guess that individuals who have um, a sickle cell specialist who really knows this disease and knows the ins and outs um, is likely going to provide more option for those individuals. The other thing is it's not just about the provider. It's also about the social worker and the case manager and the supportive care that's available in a sickle cell center that's not available for a primary care doctor. Often primary care doctors are very interested in caring for individuals with sickle cell disease, but they don't have the resources or the manpower to make sure that patients have all of their care coordinated. Sickle cell disease is an incredibly complicated disease that unfortunately affects every organ system. And it requires quite a lot of attention in order to ensure that those patients get the right follow-up and that that follow-up is coordinated. And so, you know, one of our, our main goals is to improve access to care is that every patient living with sickle cell disease deserves access to a sickle cell center. And that may be that they only see them once a year and that the other times they see a, a hub or what we like to think of as an affiliate of that center. So to actually um, make this happen, we have started what's called the National Alliance of Sickle Cell Centers or NASAC. And the reason that we have done this most importantly is we wanna make sure that we as providers of individuals with sickle cell disease can fight for what's right for our patients. There are stroke centers, there are epilepsy centers, there are cancer centers, and they all have rules and things that, that sort of identify them as a center. They also get different payments from insurance companies to provide center-based care. And all this time, sickle cell has had none of that. And so if we can form an alliance where we work together, where we collect data to really improve on outcomes and quality improvement, and also if we can ensure that all of our, our centers are providing the same care, we really think we can improve the outcomes in sickle cell disease. Approximately how many centers have joined this coalition? So far we've had, I think we're up to 21 as of today, but we are an inclusive group. We are very interested in having as many centers as possible. And if you are a budding center, so we work actually through the American Society of Hematology, we've started a workshop where we actually bring centers in who want to be centers or bring wannabes in and we teach them about how to become a sickle cell center and what they need to do and help provide a little bit of oomph to bring to their C-suite to say, this is why we need to have a sickle cell center. And, you know, this is what we need to do to be called a sickle cell center. And so as those centers are up and getting on board, we call them associate members. So they're not full members until they have all the different comprehensive uh, parts in place. And then we have our affiliate members who are spokes where we're the hub and they're the spoke to hope that we can extend access to care into our rural communities as much as possible. As a sickle cell center, you're situated in an academic center with uh, close access to both the children's hospital and uh, the adult hospital. How is this impacting and how do you perceive this around the country impacting physicians who go through training and medical students who go through training so that we're more sensitive and more aware of this and uh, don't be like some of uh, the residents I've seen in the past who said, oh my God, I got another sickler. What, first of all, that's an insult to use that term, but sickle cell is a horrible disease and we should understand it's a horrible disease. And hopefully as sickle cell centers can be a role model for improving our empathy. Absolutely. So I should 
clarify that not all sickle cell centers are based actually in academia. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we have some freestanding sickle cell centers. So there's one in Florida that is separated. It's an adult center only. It's not mm -hmm. near a pediatric center, though they work with nearby pediatric centers for transition. Um, there's one in Indiana that's a whole life center that is their own um, small practice. So they don't mm -hmm. actually have to be associated with mm -hmm. an academic center. And uh, some of our affiliates are also not academic centers. Mm -hmm. One of my favorites is Beaufort, South Carolina. It's one of my affiliates. And so I have a nurse practitioner there who sees uh, patients and we have a very small infusion area, just, just two chairs, mm -hmm. but it really helps provide access for those individuals. And I think it's so important that we all recognize that no one is their disease. We should not refer to anybody by their disease. If you have hemophilia, you are not a hemophiliac. And if you have cystic fibrosis, you are not a CFer. You are a person who lives with a chronic condition and sickle cell is the same way. And I think the more that we understand that these are individuals who have this disease and they are not their disease, the more we can also help them be better. Well, you've really uh, uh, done a great job of explaining this and hopefully more and more hospitals around the country will support uh, sickle cell centers and support having infusion areas uh, so, so that we can help the patients avoid the emergency department when at all possible, which will make the patients happier. It'll make the physicians who care for those patients happier and also make the emergency department happier because anytime we can offload the emergency department and let them take care of trauma and, and major other diseases, uh, it'd be a good thing. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. And I, I hope hospitals hear loud and clear how much not just patients benefit, but they benefit by really reducing some of that acute care that we don't have to, to put on the hospital or the ED, and we can really improve outcomes for these individuals. Well, certainly it seems like investing in an infusion center is going to be cost benefit because you decrease admissions uh, and you decrease admissions on people who are less likely to have big money insurance. Absolutely. You decrease admissions. And of course, you also decrease the complications. You know, we know that people, when they're admitted to the hospital with sickle cell disease are at increased risk for infections, for acute chest syndrome and blood clots. And so if we can avoid that, we can also really help people uh, have less complications and less comorbid symptoms. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me on this podcast. And I really hope that everybody has learned quite a bit as I have from talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating discussion focused on the importance of initiating pain relief as quickly as possible when patients have a vascular occlusive crisis. The study showed that initiation of these infusions to decrease pain occurs more rapidly at infusion centers than it does in emergency departments, and we discussed the many reasons for that. This increased speed of starting the infusions leads to the pain decreasing more quickly, which leads to decreased admissions to the hospital and decreased complications from sickle cell. We also discussed the value of sickle cell centers uh, and how they're advancing our knowledge and care of patients with sickle cell disease. You can find more information on these sickle cell centers at all one word, sicklecellcenters.org. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.